podcast beginning next week. So many spiritual dangers threaten us in this life, and that's why Scripture gives us the constant warning to be watchful and alert in the face of some of these dangers that threaten us. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be watchful, because your adversary the devil is roaming around seeking whom he may devour. That word watchful is a fascinating word which means to arise, to arouse, to refrain yourself from sleeping. And it, it was known in the physical sphere. Um, be watchful. You, you drive into certain subdivisions and you see the little robber with the mask and the hat. And it says this is a neighborhood watch zone, right? I, I, have you ever been a part of a neighborhood watch? Anybody been a part of a neighborhood watch? I, I don't, wasn't even going to talk about this, but I, thought, I think that's interesting. Is that, I wonder if that means, since nobody is a part of it, that somebody is already always on watch. I mean, what neighborhood would not be watched? Could you imagine a sign that said, there's no neighborhood watch here? Like, uh, like, aren't we, aren't we, like a neighborhood watch, does that mean somebody's always on duty? Someone is assigned an hour a day where they're looking out for the masked guy with the hat? Or is it just put there as a deterrent for people to say, oh no, this is a neighborhood watch, I'm going to move on to someplace where there isn't a neighborhood watch? In the physical world, it's important for us to watch out for dangers. Before you left today, you probably made sure the iron was off, the stove was off, or whatever. You, you, we are watchful for physical dangers. If we heard that a, that a criminal had, been, uh, es- had escaped from prison and was in the Romeo community, right? everybody would be on lockdown mode. We would be watchful and concerned in the physical, ro- physical realm. Many of us, though, are not aware or earnest, or at attention, or alert in the face of spiritual dangers. I mentioned 1 Peter 5.8, also Colossians 4.2 uses this word saying, be watchful in prayer. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, be watchful, stand firm in your faith. And so we wonder what those dangers are, because a lot of times we think, well, the dangers are all out there. The dangers are all out there, threatening to come in here and attack us. Not physically, but you understand what I'm saying? Spiritually or morally, it's those worldly people. It's that, it's that society that is out to get us, and they are going to come in, and that's where the danger is, when in reality, many of those times, those dangers arise from our own flesh, and we are in danger if we are not aware and attentive to that. And the danger that's being presented to us in Luke 15 is the danger of drifting towards pharisaical attitudes, the idea of us being self-righteous, better than everybody else, deserving of salvation, disdaining and, and even despising the sinners who would dare approach these grounds, right? This kind of attitude. That's the attitude the Pharisees had in verses 1 and 2, which we mentioned last week, when they noticed that Jesus was welcoming sinners. This was a scandal, even though, as we look at some other passages, 1 Timothy 1, for instance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There is no surprise that Jesus is doing what he is doing, and the parables are in response to these guys. You understand that? He's telling these parables in response to people who didn't care about the lost but thought they themselves were kind of standing above, worthy and deserving of the salvation that Jesus came to offer. And so these parables really tell them something about God, and they tell them something about themselves, about God. We talked about the 
all of this last week, and if you help me, it will really encourage me. What do these parables tell us about God? Close, and there's one specific part about it. It's like a dagger to the heart. I'm about to die. What's the emotion? Joy, right? God takes great, yes, his ministry is seeking the lost, but the fact that he takes great joy in it. The shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and says, rejoice with me. The, the woman finds the coin, calls her friends, rejoice with me. The father has his son return and, and, and begins a feast. We must celebrate. God is not a reluctant savior. He does seek and save the lost, and he has joy in doing that. We talked about pursuing that joy, so that's what it it tells us about God and about them. It tells us, it tells them that they are completely out of touch with God. Because they should be walking into that feast that Jesus is receiving and welcoming sinners, like, yeah, more of them are here. He's going to win more of these crummy sinners like us. But they come in like, hey, what is going on here? Uh, what are you doing, Lord? Don't you realize these people? Get them out of here, like. They see the attitude is completely different. You got shepherd, woman, father, joy, 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 all representing God's joy in seeking the lost. Then you have these, these self-righteous Pharisees, and the danger is us becoming like them, and we're reminded of that when we, when we read these parables. So the overriding theme, of course, is God's joy in redeeming the lost, and we must pursue that same joy, or we become kind of closet Pharisees. So we want to keep that in mind. Parable number one. We're going to spend most of our time with parable number one, and we'll just briefly talk about parable number two. The first parable he shares is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, from the first word of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which is the Hebrew word shema, it means hear. From that phrase comes a confession of faith that the Jews have recited morning and evening for thousands of years. It's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. The Jews recited that prayer morning and evening even to this day. God, from that passage and from many others in the Scriptures, has always claimed and declared to be the one and only God. Isaiah 43.10, Before me no God was formed, and there shall not be one after me. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Besides me there is no God. And from the very beginning, man has been inventing other small g gods that they might worship. And we see those throughout the scripture too. From the gods of Egypt, that battled with the God of Moses that was no battle, to the God of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel with Elijah, the comical vision there of Elijah saying, hey, scream louder, your God must be on the toilet. That's really what he's saying. Your God must be on a trip, on a journey. Come on, try harder. To the gods of Rome, I mean, to the gods of our day, which are not maybe idols of stone, but are gods of materialism or plurality, or where every man really is his own God. And here we see in the invention of all of these gods the very uniqueness of the one true God. 
Because man-made gods are typically demanding, threatening, and fearful. Whereas none of them are referred to as our God. When David, who is out in the hills caring for his sheep, all of a sudden realizes under inspiration of the Holy Ghost that his care of the sheep is exactly the way God cares for him. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. And he, he attributes to God this tenderness, this kindness, this, this gentleness that does not depict other man-made gods. To think of God as a tender shepherd is an image that God himself has revealed to us throughout all of Scripture, feeding us, leading us, restoring us in the dark shadow of death, being with us, filling us with complete and permanent joy. Psalm 80 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, another very tender passage saying, He will tend or lead or guide his flock like a shepherd and he will carry them in his arms isaiah 53 we are pictured as sheep who have gone astray and in ezekiel 34 he announces that he himself will search for those lost sheep and seek them out when you connect isaiah 53 the sheep who are going astray to ezekiel 34 verses 11 and 12 with god himself seeking them out there's this beautiful picture that is going to be now depicted in luke 15 Jesus himself in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus says. So as Jesus begins this parable saying to these uh, self-righteous hypocrites, he's trying to explain to them this makes complete sense what we're doing here because this is the ministry of God and always has been. Sheep that have gone wayward God is pictured as the shepherd who is going to go out and find them and rescue them and save them. So he begins this parable with, which one of you, this is uh, Luke 15, verse 4, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, which would be a lot, this was a, a wealthy person, if he has lost one of them, well, who cares? Right? We've got 99 other people, other sheep. And Jesus says, well, even if that happens, don't you leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one until he's, that is lost until he finds it. Let me bring three initial thoughts to our attention regarding this phrase, which of you? Okay, which of you? This, this terminology or this phraseology, which of you, is used a lot in the scripture. And it's always, well, I should say almost always used to bring about a, a yes response or a positive response. In other words, it's not a question like, which one of you would, uh, would like a donut this morning and maybe half of us would raise our hands? It, it's more of a, which one of you would run out of this building if it was on fire right now? And, right, th that's, the, that's what I I'm, I'm hope that makes sense. Like when he asked that question, the response is an almost guaranteed, oh yeah, that, there, this is like a hypothetical answer that should be answered the same way by everybody. He's posed questions like that. Which one of you who has an ox or a son fallen a well will not drag him out even if it's a Sabbath? So the answer is demonstrated to determine that this is a perfectly appropriate response. A shepherd who is seeking a lost sheep, even though he has 99 other ones, is exactly what that shepherd would be doing.
Because a shepherd has a job, and that job is to take care of these sheep. And if one is lost, that shepherd needs to go find that one, even if the other 99 have to be left. And so what Jesus is saying is, if it is appropriate for the shepherd to do that, it is appropriate for me to receive and welcome sinners. This is perfectly expected. The Pharisees are complaining about Jesus' ministry, but they are the ones who are out of place because Jesus is receiving sinners. It is not Jesus who is out of place. Secondly, which of you also uh, would, would raise up in these Pharisees kind of an attitude of anger? Because shepherds were very lowly members of society. These were dirty, unclean people who spent their lives outside. And the Pharisees wouldn't want to touch these people lest they be polluted. And now Jesus is saying, which one of you who has 100 sheep? And these people were like, we, we are not shepherds. Don't put us in that category. I mean, the Pharisees would be responding uh, almost with anger here that they would be uh, associated with a shepherd. They would be unsettled at the very least. And here we have in contrast the humility of Jesus who actually compares himself to a shepherd. Thirdly, when he says, which one of you who has a sheep that was lost? Right, we've had cats run away. Right, cat, our cats run away. One cat ran away for nine weeks and came back. Okay, our, we had a, cat, a male cat was gone for two weeks at a time, come back. Two weeks at a time, come back. Sheep do not do that. Sheep are not made to do that. We understand, and you've heard it many, many times, that sheep are not smart animals. Uh, they are very needy. They, they need the tending of the shepherd. Um, when the sheep is lost, okay, we say, which man of you has 100 sheep if he has lost one of them? All of these people who lived in an agrarian society, in other words, they understood what it meant to pasture animals, everyone understand that, that, that this sheep would be in danger. That, that they wouldn't say, you know, sometimes uh, when the cat would be lost, uh, a member of our family would be very concerned about it, and uh, they would all console me and say, no, the cat will come back. I know you thought it was Jessica, but no, the cat will come back. Don't worry about it. The cat will come back. And sure enough, the cat came back. Well, when Jesus would say, which one of you has lost a sheep? No one would say, well, don't worry about it. Just tomorrow you'll have 100 again because this sheep would not come back on its own. It was a goner. And there are three words to describe this lost sheep. First, it would be disoriented. It would not be able to find its way back. It would, it would be out there and get lost, and it, it would not even have the thought, okay, it would not be able to connect the dots where it was. Or You know, we've heard of animals, uh, I think, whether cats or dogs, maybe not dogs so much, but a cat who can be found like 900 miles away from home and almost track his way back or something. Sheep cannot do that. They are disoriented. They are defenseless. How in the world would this sheep fight back against a wolf or a lion or some other fierce creature? And eventually it would be destroyed. Remember last week I said that this word lost in the passage actually means to perish or to be destroyed. The animal is disoriented, defenseless, and destroyed and eventually would be attacked by a beast, fall from a cliff, or die of its own starvation. In fact, one thing I read said the sheep would almost be so discouraged that it would just lay down in the grass and just stay there and die. It would just give up. Just the hopelessness of that sheep. That's pathetic, isn't it? Sure wish Jesus would have referred to us like as something better than that. Some dumb, disoriented, destroyed sheep. But that's what Isaiah 53 says. 
all we like sheep have wandered off. Many like to claim that uh, eventually they'll find their way back to God, right? They'll be all right. No. The picture of the sheep being lost is perilous in the parable, just as a person being lost and separated from God is perilous and dangerous. This idea of being disoriented, defenseless, and destroyed and destined for death is a perfect picture of our own spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, we are lost, spiritually starving, under a threat of attack, and we are destined for our own demise. We would never and could never find our way back to God. It is imperative that the shepherd come looking for us. And if you are saved today, it is because the shepherd found you. Because the shepherd found you. Though we are commanded over and over in Scripture to seek after God, Scripture also tells us that no one does. Romans 3.10. No one seeks after God. We've often said here that we, that we believe in seeker-sensitive churches, but it is not the people who are seeking, it is God who is doing the seeking. It is strange to have a seeker-sensitive church when there are no seekers. It would be like saying, uh, we're going to have a gospel outreach tonight for aliens. I don't think anybody would show up. Like, we're going to have a seeker-sensitive church. Well, there, there are no people like that. God is the one who is seeking. That's very clear from the shepherd. Uh, we are alone, we are desperate, and we are in need of that seeking and saving the loving and tender shepherd. And that's where I go back to what I began with as far as God being depicted as a gentle, tender shepherd, not a man-made, threatening, demanding, angry God who says, let that sheep fall off a cliff, dumb sheep. Deserves it. I'm not risking my life to go out and try to save that sheep. Well, Christ does, and there's more to this, and I hope it's a real blessing to you. This, this, this will be a real blessing, I hope. We are then indebted to the one who has sought and saved the lost. He displays this great compassion. Look back at the passage. Here's the great, here's the great uh, punch of the passage, at least for me. He has 100 sheep and leaves the 99 in the open country and goes after the one who is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, I want to, I know we're going to talk about the parable of the lost coin, but our time will be gone by then, so it's going to be very, very short. We're just going to tack that on the end. But this, this, is the, this is the heart or the meat of the message. And these are the four things that this little, little paragraph that we just read uh, Four, four great applications of what the shepherd has done here. Okay, so this, this is what I want you to, to grasp. It's, it's this phrase, he finds the sheep, and then he puts it on his shoulders. There's so much for us to digest. Okay, I want you to see these four things. Okay, first, and, and just four words, first is intimacy. Intimacy. There is a closeness when that shepherd hoists that, what, 70, 80, 90 pound animal up on its shoulder, so here's the sheep's head. You get the picture of it, right? And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But this sheep, which was just a moment ago desperately lost, I, I imagine the shepherd feels that heartbeat on his back, feels that breath on his face. I don't know if sheep lick face. You know, but you can imagine. You can, I mean, this is a close 
intimate situation. This shepherd has this sheep up on his shoulders. What a tenderness here. Now, our dog is 55 pounds, and I've lifted her up on occasion, and I'll pick her up and hold her right here, and she licks my face, and she breathes. I mean, this is a closeness that maybe some of you don't appreciate, but it's that kind of, it's that kind of intimacy and closeness that is being described here. The sheep is close to the shepherd. There is, there is a love and a tenderness. The, the, sheep, the sheep is inspected uh, maybe for thorns or for injury, and you can imagine the shepherd kind of playfully scolding that sheep. You know, where'd you go, little guy? We talk to our pets, you understand that. And lifts that thing up on his shoulders and carries it home. There's secondly, security. Again, moments earlier, the sheep was in great distress, maybe a second from death, and now it's on the shepherd's shoulders, secure and safe and contented in the compassionate arms of the shepherd. Third, and this is, this is a big point, not only is there intimacy and security, but there is the idea of burden. This is probably the most important of all the insights. The symbolism here is encouraging. Why do they think the shepherd didn't tie a rope around this sheep's neck and drag it back or lead it back or smack it on the rear with his rod or staff? Why did he pick it up and carry it? Well, first, of course, to show what I've already said, the intimacy and tenderness, but also to demonstrate the burden of the shepherd. And this is good. There is a statue in the Lateran Museum of Rome that dates back to the 3rd century A.D., so the year 300. Um, and it is thought to have come from the catacombs, that someone made it and they kept it in the catacombs. And it is this image. It's one of the earliest statues of Christian uh, history of this shepherd holding the sheep on his shoulders. So even in the early days of the church, believers took comfort in this image. Listen to Psalm 28, verse 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. What is this image of the, of the carrying? Listen to what Philip Melanchthon said, church father from years gone by. There is in this parable, he says, quote, a sweet significance of the passion of Christ, the passion of Christ, refers to his last week and especially his death, suffering, and death. So there, it, he says, in this, in this parable, there's a picture of the passion of Christ. Well, where is it? He places on his shoulders the sheep that he has found, and in doing so, he transfers to himself the burden of carrying us. That is so good. The image here is this. Who shoulders the burden of salvation? It is the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. We don't walk back. We're not helped back. We're not led back. We're not even scolded back. We are carried back on his shoulders. This is not an image of Jesus lifting up discouraged people. Or helping us when we're kind of down and out. This is a picture of a person who was near death. 
and needed to be rescued, had no hope, wasn't going to find his own way back, was so desperate that he might have just laid down and died and given up. Shepherd comes, grabs that sheep. Oh, little one, where were you? Hoists it up on his shoulders and bears him back and delivers him from death. This is beautiful. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Listen to the imagery that maybe you've never sensed before. Yes, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has done what? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. Six verses later in that same passage, Isaiah 53, 6. He bore the sins of many. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. The symbolism is so sweet, and Scripture just speaks about it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. How have we returned? We were carried back. We owe it all to him. He has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. He lifts us up, not out of discouragement, but out of spiritual death and raises us up on his shoulder and bears that load all the way to the cross of Calvary where he took his sins, in his, my sins, in his body that I might be delivered and saved. We did nothing but get lost. Works don't do it. Baptism don't do it. Church membership don't do it. I know I'm speaking bad English, but I'm trying to emphasize this. Nothing does that. The shepherd did all the work. All we did was got picked up. He sought us, found us, and carried us. I mean, do we owe thanks and praise to God or what for this deliverance? Not only is there intimacy, that's beautiful too. We have this intimacy with Christ, security in Christ. He bore our burdens, and then finally, We'll just mention it as number four. There's the joy. There's the joy that he has. This shepherd doesn't come back to the group and whatever other people are waiting, according to the passage. He calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. He isn't angry for the time that he had to waste going out. Like I said, he carried this 70, 80-pound beast on his shoulders. Who knows how far? He's not complaining about that. Oh, my sore neck, that dumb sheep. Remember what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 12? Why did he endure the cross and despise the shame? For the what? For the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Just that it's going to be over with? Like we endure a dentist appointment? Fred's not here so I can say that. We endure a dentist appointment and we say, well, the joy is it's going to one day be over. No, the joy that he considered was those sheep that he would carry on home. That's what I mean. Like, not only does he love you, care for you, seek you, find you, die for you, he's filled with joy to do it for you. Now, why in the world does everybody not want to be a, a part of this Jesus or a friend to this Jesus? Because there's a little more to it, because now this Jesus demands that you show allegiance to him. Well, duh. We, we were out on our own, lost, destined for death, and he saves us. Well, thanks for that. It's ridiculous. Parable number two, and again, I, I told you we we're just going to be brief on this second parable because it's very similar to the first. Isn't that beautiful symbolism? I mean, that is just beautiful. I wish I could express it as much as it means to me. I feel like I'm falling short to express what the shepherd has done. I, I hope the Lord just takes that word and encourages you because I just, I can't, I can't, I can't 
find the words to even express how beautiful it is. I wish I could preach it again. He tells a second parable about a woman who finds a coin. Now, Jesus does a lot of this in his life and ministry, and especially in the, doc, in the, uh, in the record of Luke, where he'll do two things back-to-back, and one concerns a man and one concerns a woman. Even in the Gospel of John, you have Nicodemus, and then you have the woman at the well. But in Luke itself, you have, in Luke chapter 7, he heals a centurion's servant, a man, and then he raises a widow's son, a woman. He talks about uh, Jonah, and he equates that to the men of Nineveh, men, and he equates it to the queen of Sheba, woman. He heals the woman who has the bent-over disease, and then he heals the man who has dropsy. He meets a man and calls him son of Abraham. He meets a woman and calls him daughter of Abraham. So Jesus could have told this parable about a man who loses a coin, but he told about a woman who uses a coin. So what Luke is clearly saying here, and another thing that the Pharisees would be against, is involving women in the discussion of theology, or women included in the teachings of Christ. Luke is clearly saying that Jesus desires to teach and include and instruct and love and die and care for women just as he does men. The theology and teaching of Jesus is not just for men. Now, we believe that the church, God has ordained the church to set up uh, men as, as pastors and elders, but there are no other restrictions on women. Women are not just to be second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, and this is kind of what the Pharisees thought. You're a woman, you're kind of, you're kind of you just stay in your place, and that not ought to be th- the thinking of the church. In fact, Jesus goes further than that, because think about this. In the parable of the shepherd, he's the shepherd. In the parable of the, good, of the prodigal son, God is the father. Well, who is the woman searching for the coin, if not God? God actually represents himself here as a woman. Now, we've got to be real careful. We can't take one little statement out of context here. God is not man or woman. God does not have a gender because God does not have a body. So God is, God, but God has chosen to reveal himself to us with masculine pronouns. Father, son, he, etc. And there have been heresies that have taken Bibles and kind of switched all those pronouns and made it she and he. But there are occasions where God uses uh, the attributes or actions of a woman to equate to himself. For instance, in Isaiah 66, verse 13, he says about himself, just as one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. He's equating his comfort to the comfort of a mother. And here, actually, he's setting himself up as the woman who seeks the coin. So we must not insist or infer that women cannot learn sound theology, but that women must be treated with respects and their gifts and service valued. Now, the difference between, besides that, between the coin and the sheep is this. What the shepherd parable indicates is that is the compassion of Christ. And what the coin story indicates is the value he places on the lost thing. Look at verse 8. What woman has ten silver coins? These these would be carried on a string or carried in a little rag, um, and maybe she loses one of them. Now, in those days coins were not necessarily primarily used for buying and selling things. There would often be bartering going on in markets, so coins would be like super valuable. This is not like a woman has 10 silver dollars and loses one. We must not think that. This is, this is a very valuable, valuable thing. And if she loses one, life stops. She lights a lamp and sweeps the house 
and seeks diligently to find it. And the reason she does that is because of the value that is placed on that coin. The woman seeks diligently. Again, this is similar. And again, I told you I was just going to be quick about this. It is similar, again, to the search of the shepherd. And the same thing happens at the end. When she finds this coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, for the next five minutes as we conclude this, I want to point out how both parables end. That's, that's how we want to end this, okay? If you look at verse number, both parables end with the party or the rejoicing. The shepherd rejoices, calls his friends. The lady rejoices, calls her friends. And then Jesus concludes that with a statement that relates to the story he just told. So why did I tell this story about the sheep? Verse number 7. Just so, okay, just like that party, he's saying, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He equates the, the celebration of the shepherd to the celebration in heaven over a repenting sinner. And then he does the same thing at the end of the second parable in verse number 10. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now there's a phrase in there that might bring some questions to our minds, and this is where I want to conclude and kind of bring the application home to us, okay? Joy over one sinner who repents, then over, this is verse 7, then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So who is the person that doesn't need to repent? This is the easy kickball answer. Who is, who is the person that doesn't need to repent? Well, you're jumping to it, but, but just if, if before we jump to that application, who is the person that needs to repent? Everybody has to. So there, there is not a person who does not need to repent. It, and we're kind of saying it backwards. So when Jesus says, right, just so, just like the shepherd celebration, hey, friends, friends, look what I found. Hey, just like this party, there's a celebration going on in heaven. When one person repents, even though there might be 99 who don't need repentance. Now, be careful. He's not saying, you know, that these 99 have already repented and are in heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. He's referring back to his audience. He's saying not that these 99 don't need to repentance, don't need repentance, but let's add one word. They don't think they need repentance. That's what he's saying. Okay? So these guys walk into the room, see Jesus eating with these sinners, these disgusting, filthy, vile people, and they're upset with this. And Jesus tells the story, there is joy when one of these individuals comes to the knowledge that they need to repent versus all of you who think you don't need me. This is the greatest danger and the, probably the greatest lie Satan has ever proposed, that we're basically good people. I mean, there, we talk about a lie today, right? We're talking about lie and truth. Isn't that the great, wouldn't you think that's one of the, if not one of the greatest, certainly in the top three of the greatest Satan's lies, that we're basically good people? I mean, the only people that go to hell, I mean, maybe you molested children or you uh, murdered somebody. I mean, yeah, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, they'll all be in hell. And, you know, it's a funny way, I'll go to Hitler. Uh, Hitler will be in hell. As if the only people who go to hell are people who commit mass genocide. Right? Certainly people who raise their families, go to work every day, attend church, sing in a choir, uh, you know, teach Sunday school, or are faithful in their work. Right? They, they put in good window glass. Right? They're, they're, they're kind kind, generous ladies, right? 
come on. Those people are good. And, and like we talked about last week, they kind of think, like if, if heaven is the end of the stage, you know, I can get this far, and then I just get a little push from Jesus to get me over the edge. That's what the whole world thinks, isn't it? We ask a thousand people within a mile of this church, 900 of them will say they're going, more than that, 990 will say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. That's lie of Satan, that we don't need to repent. Everyone needs to repent. And that is what brings joy to God when this sinner comes to that realization. Remember, we talked about what repentance was, and I think it's important that I mention it again. Repentance engages the whole person. We repent with our minds. Let me give you three words to help us with this, and maybe this will help you if you've never repented to ask yourself, which is what Derek uh, encouraged us about Sunday school this morning, to test ourselves. Maybe you've never done this and need to do this, or maybe you never understood what repentance means because repentance is the key to obtaining the righteousness that Christ wants to give us. This is what he says here. That we need that righteousness, so we need to repent. Well, how do I do that? Maybe if you haven't done it, you can do it, or if you want to share with someone how to do it, this is how you do it. I said a lot there, but maybe whatever. Here's how we repent. We repent with our minds. The key to this is we acknowledge our sin. That's the key word. We acknowledge our sin. We admit it. We don't, we don't excuse it. We don't rationalize it. We don't even weigh it. And this is what the world does. They weigh their sin. Because I've only met one person in my whole life that has said they never sinned. I ran into this guy. Terry Jinks and I were out uh, uh, doing some... Uh, door knocking and we ran into this guy who was an orthodox jew and says he keeps all the law i said how many how many laws are there 316 or whatever number he said i said you've kept all of them yes never ran into that before i've never run into that before i mean what do you do you get into a debate and argue but uh, most of the people will say oh you, know, you say are you a sinner most people say yeah but they rationalize it they excuse it they weigh it they say of course we've all done bad things but i'm trying to do better I'm trying to overcome that with good things. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. You, here's how you acknowledge your sin. You agree with God about what it is. It offends him. And it destines you for hell. And you say with your mind, I acknowledge that sin. I admit it before God. Then you have to also repent with your emotions. And the key word for this is sorrow. You have to be sorry for your sins. Now, this is real important. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there is, a, there is a worldly sorrow that works death. There's a worldly sorrow that works death. There's a godly sorrow that works repentance unto eternal life. So when it says there's worldly sorrow, we're not talking about like what this family is going through with the loss of their husband and father. Like the, just the sorrow of the world. We're talking about how a person relates to their sin. I mean, if we imagine, I mean, I, I just, th I think in pictures, so if we imagine this kind of represents our sin, okay, how am, I gonna, how am I going to be sorry for that? Well, I can exercise kind of a worldly sorrow to my sin because I'm sorry about what it's doing to me, or I can exercise godly sorrow to it because I'm sorry for what it's doing to God. A lot of people have worldly sorrow because their sin got them in trouble, or they just feel bad about it. Or it ran them into some consequences that they didn't foresee. And they're, and they're desperately sorry for it. Right? The husband who gets caught in pornography. I'm sorry. Right? Or, or, or whatever sin it might be. Well, I'm sorry because of what it did to me. Godly sorrow is sorrow because of what our sin has done to God. 
That is the type of repentance that must be exercised. And then we must also exercise repentance with our will. And the key word is we must turn. We must stop committing that sin. doesn't mean we'll ever stop perfectly. Folks, I struggle with sin every day of my life. So do you. But we must have this desire to turn from it, to hate it, uh, to, to, to despise that sin and turn away from it. So in our minds we say, I have done this. And God, I, I'm grieved over what it's done to you. It has offended you and I deserve death. And I want to turn from that. That is what brings joy in heaven. Not these people over here that look at their sin and say, we don't need to do any repenting. That's what Jesus says. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Because the righteous are too busy congratulating themselves on how much God must appreciate them. So Jesus is telling his listeners, you are totally out of touch. You're out of touch, first of all, because you don't understand my ministry is to sinful people. And secondly, you don't understand that you should be in that group. You're a part of that group that I'm reaching out to, and you refuse to repent. Again, there's two categories. There's always two categories in the Bible, the righteous and the wicked, children of God, children of the devil, wheat, tares, sheep, goats. I mean, they're, they're over and over, two groups. There is no believers, unbelievers, and people who claim to know Christ that are really just struggling. Right, well, yeah, I believe, but I uh, haven't been to church in 10 years, struggling with all these sins. I'm a carnal Christian. <laughs> ridiculous. That's ridiculous. There's two groups, and the two groups here are the one who repents and the one who needs no repentance. So which category do you find yourself in? Not your friend, not your neighbor, not your son, not your daughter, not your spouse. Which are you in? Have you repented, or do you claim to not need any repentance? Well, the great news is, is that once you admit your repentance, Jesus, that good shepherd, carries you home because he has borne your sins. Will you not then today return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls? Let's pray. Father, it's hard to convey the blessing of this good shepherd and this woman with the coin. It is just hard to really express the joy that we have of knowing that you have sought and saved us. We're just overwhelmed that you bore our sins, you carried our griefs. And surely we didn't seem you stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But you have done the heavy lifting, so to speak to reconcile us to God. Help us, help each one in the room to examine them, their own lives and to truly repent and receive the saving work of Jesus Christ and to share this message with other people and to, for those of us who know Christ to rejoice at all the shepherd has done for us. How glad we are to be your sheep, to be in your fold, to know that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we acknowledge that this is nothing that we have done. And all the praise and glory goes to you, for you have done it all. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.